our study in Mark. We've been traveling through Mark for the past two years. And uh, just to let you know, next week we finish our study in Mark. Uh, chapter 16, we'll cover the resurrection and our response. Uh, I've been toying with the idea of what the title of the message is going to be next week, whether it's going to be Closing Remarks or So What? So what do we do after the two years, and what are we going to do with it after two years? So come back next week and see what the title is going to be for the message uh, for our closing of our study in Mark. Last week we were in chapter 15. It was the scene of Jesus and the trials, Jesus before Pilate. Pilate gives in to the people uh, and the crowd, and he's given over uh, Jesus to be crucified. In verses 16 through 20 is the scene where Jesus is mocked, he's spit on, He's beaten in Mark chapter uh, 15, verse 20. tells us they put his own garments on him and they let him out to be crucified. And that's where we pick up the story. Mark chapter 15, verse 21, as they lead Jesus out to be crucified. Now, here's what I would ask you to do, to think about doing. You certainly don't have to do this, but I want to encourage you uh, to do this this morning. I'm going to read all 26 verses of the end of chapter 15 in Mark. And I want to invite you to close your eyes and hear the story and get yourself in the story as I read it for us. <clears throat> they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what man, what each man should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among them who were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less, and Hosus, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before Sabbath, 
Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was already dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Hoses, were looking on to see where he was laid. Lots to unpack this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I know as we have read this passage, as we as best as we could gotten ourselves there, I am confident that your spirit is speaking in different ways to different people in their hearts and their minds as they're reflecting of Jesus on the cross. And so, God, I pray that as your spirit continues to teach us in all wisdom and all truth from your word, that you would find us in a position to receive and to be teachable and to take all of it in, all the things that you want us to know and to learn and to live out. Help us by your spirit to understand your word and our response to it. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning is The Great Paradox. And I titled it because as I was reading this story, this passage in different Gospels, in Luke and John and, and of course, Mark, I, I began feeling this thing happen inside of me of this anger that started to raise up in me about how they were treating Jesus and what they were doing to him. But then I realized that this same story that was bringing me anger is the same story that relieves me and frees me from anger. It was like both things were happening at one time. It was a paradox. Here's some paradoxes that you may have heard of to help get us in the mindset. Here's a paradox you may have heard. A jumbo shrimp. Maybe you've heard somebody say, or maybe you've even said, I'm nobody. Those two things can't exist. Bitter sweet. I'm reminded of Charles Dickens telling two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven or we were all going the other way. And in some ways, Charles Dickens, I believe, describes what was happening at the cross. This paradox, two things happening at one time, almost an exchange of things happening at one time. The paradox at the most basic level is a statement that is self-contradictory because it often contains two statements that are both true, 
but in general cannot be true at the same time. A statement that runs contrary to one's expectation. So as we read through Mark, we will begin seeing pretty clear some paradoxes. Two things happening at one time that may seem contradictory and will surpass our expectations. The first paradox we're going to see is from verses 22 and 23. It's the paradox of strength and weakness. Verse 22 says this, They brought him to a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull, and they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, Mark writes this story, this account, as if it is present tense happening right in front of him. And here's the first paradox we see that Mark sees, is that Jesus is weak. Jesus is weak. After all the trials, after all the beatings, this long walk down the Via Della Rosa, the insults, the abuse, there is no doubt that Jesus is physically exhausted and weak. But how does it sound to us to hear that Jesus is weak? It seems contradictory. Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, holds all things together by the word and his power. And at the same time we know that's true, we also know that Jesus is weak. He who bears all things by the word of his power now himself is weak on the cross. Now let me ask you just for a second, what does weakness look like? What does weakness feel like? Have you ever felt weak? Have you ever admitted that you're weak? In our culture today, that's not something you start with. You don't lead in with, hey, I'm just feeling weak today. In fact, our culture tells you to kind of hide it, push it down, present a different front of power, control, strength. But here we see Jesus as weak. Now, the definition of weakness is lack of strength, firmness, vigor, or the like. A feebleness. Does that sound like Jesus? It is the paradox of the cross that our strength comes out of his weakness. Our endurance comes out of his submission. Our healing, as Isaiah says, comes from his wounds. And out of his death is our life. Now, there are some weaknesses that are circumstantial, that are from the outside. It's a weakness due to conditions, a a, a sickness, or something that happens to us. This weakness that Jesus has is a willing weakness. He is willing to submit to his Father. And in that submission, there's also strength. Two things happening at one time. Now we read in verse 23 where they repeatedly try to give him uh, wine mixed with myrrh and some other things in order to... um, uh, these, these people would come around, generally ladies that would come around, and they would give them like this, this uh, uh, anesthesia or this, uh, this numbing thing to, to help numb the pain of what's going on with Jesus. 
and the other, ex, uh, other criminals. But Jesus denies it. He says, I am willingly, willingly becoming weak. William Barclay, a commentator who I like to, to, look, to read through, he says this, Jesus was resolved to taste death at its bitterest point and go to God with his eyes wide open. So what does that mean for you and me? His weakness becomes our strength. And our weakness is where his strength is made perfect. First, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. We boast in the obedience and weakness, the willingness of Jesus to become weak on our behalf so that we can be made strong. The Creator, God, the one who holds it all together, becoming weak. Sometimes it just doesn't seem right or real, but it is. He willingly became weak on our behalf. What does that tell me? That tells me that I don't have to have it all together. That gives me freedom to not present this strong thing about me. It gives me freedom to be weak so Jesus can be strong. Jesus was willingly weak by man. There's a second paradox. And the second paradox is in verses 24 and 25. It's the paradox of clothing and nakedness. Notice this, and they were crucifying him and they were parting his garments and dividing up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them. Now, one thing you'll notice about Mark as we read through this book is that Mark is like always overly excited to tell something. And he'll say, and then they went this, and then they did this, and then they did this. Anybody ever tell a story like that and you just can't keep up with them because there's so many ands? It's just getting, that's how Mark writes. And so Mark's going, and, and then this, and then this, and then he gets to the part about Jesus being naked on the cross. And they stripped Jesus naked and parted his garments and cast lots for them. Now get yourself in the scene and imagine, if you will, as best you can, imagine the shame of the nakedness of Jesus on the cross. Now, under Roman law, men were crucified, exposed, naked, and open. And then we think about Jesus in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. But it doesn't stop there. Even to the death on a cross, which means he willingly, he willingly submitted himself to death on a cross, which included the shame of nakedness. And if I can be real just for a second, think about that. I, I know guys just this week who said, Matthew, I'm not even going to go to the beach today and take my shirt off. Or people say, I don't, even, I don't want to be seen in a bathing suit. But here's Jesus, God, on a cross, shamefully, 
being ridiculed and exposed. Now, the Jews knew this was bad because even if you were convicted or charged with blasphemy, they said, keep your clothes on while we stone you. This is humiliation. And we see from the paradox, out of his shame and nakedness comes his glory and crown. Listen to the end of chapter 2 in Philippians. For this reason, for the reason that Jesus submitted himself, willingly became weak, willingly exposed himself, took on the shame. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory and the Father. And here's the wonderful paradox, the wonderful exchange. His nakedness and shame brought about our covering in righteousness. Do you see that? Do you understand that? He who died naked is the only one who can clothe me in righteousness. It was all part of God's rescue plan. God, to shame his son, to expose his son in humiliation. Why? So that we can boldly approach the throne without shame and without guilt. Listen to Isaiah 61.10. I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God. Why? For he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation. He's draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. That's the exchange of the cross. Jesus and his nakedness and shame gives me clothing and righteousness. That's why, that's why we do not boast in anything about us. We boast in the submission of Jesus to his Father. There's another paradox that we see. It's the paradox of truth and ridicule. Now, there's four groups. I don't know if you picked up on when we read the story that there's four groups that are really hurling insults and ridiculing and making fun of Jesus. There was Pilate. Then there were those who were crucified with Jesus. And then there was the mob, the people that were passing by. And then there were his arch enemies, the chief priests and religious rulers. And their taunts at the cross are actually testimonies of who Jesus is. In fact, one author said this, the stones they throw at Jesus are in reality glorious prophecies that proclaim the gospel. Three testimonial paradoxes or three testimonial uh, truthful ridicules that actually reveal the, the person of Christ. The first one is this, Pilate's charge and inscription. Verse 26 reads that an inscription of the, uh, of the charge against him read King of the Jews. But in John chapter 19, this same account, listen to what it says. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified near, was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, listen to what he says, do not write king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. Pilate is making fun of Jesus being king of the Jews. And in the exact same time he's making fun of it, he's proclaiming the truth. 
It also says that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy by being hung between two thieves. Listen to this. Isaiah 53, 12. And he, Jesus, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So watch what is happening. Jesus was dying between two thieves and was dying for their sin at the same time. And Pilate comes back to Jesus with this, with this uh, double-barrel shot. Remember when Jesus and Pilate were in that exchange, and what did Pilate say to Jesus? He said, don't you realize that I have the power of life and death over you? Now think about that. This is Pilate saying to Jesus, I have power over you. And what does Jesus say back? Something that Pilate probably never heard another prisoner say before. Jesus says back to Pilate, you have nothing unless my father gives it to you. Now, what's interesting is that Pilate probably remembered that. And he wrote King of the Jews as a sarcastic ridicule put above his cross. And yet there's a paradox in it. As one author commented when he did that, in writing King of the Jews above Jesus, Pilate wrote the first Christian sermon and published it in three languages. (laughs) Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. There's a second truthful paradox of Christ's ridicule is the ridicule of the mob. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. This vulgar and hostile mob jumped in, started throwing insults at Jesus. And out of all the things that Jesus said, this is what they remembered. They remember Jesus saying, this temple, try to destroy it, and I'll rebuild it, and they're making fun of that. And what Jesus is really saying, particularly in John chapter 2, verse 19, he's saying, I'm destroy this temple. Talking about me. You destroy me, and in three days, I'm going to rebuild myself. And we'll see that what they were accusing him of, and not being able to do, Jesus actually does. But there's a third mockery from his enemies. Verse 31, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. He cannot save himself. To them, what was the greatest contempt is to us the means of eternal life. They didn't see the paradox. As best I can categorize Jesus' miracles, there are four basic categories for miracles. There were the natural miracles where he stopped the storms. Uh, There were also the healing miracles where people who were uh, blind could see and people who were deaf could hear. There was also this exorcism miracle where he would drive out demons. And then there was also this resurrection miracle that he had in, in bringing people back to life, particularly Lazarus. And now we see Jesus on the cross. And basically what the scribes and the Pharisees and what the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, what they're all saying is, uh, this man who calmed the storm, he can't calm his own storm inside of himself. Uh, this, this man who heals the flow of blood can't stop his own self from bleeding. This man who exercises legions of demons doesn't have any power right now against Satan. This one who lays Lazarus from the dead, he can't stop his own death. 
That's what they were ridiculing him about. Now, in the Greek, it's important to know this. That this phrase of the chief priest was saying that Jesus is not able to do this. That he doesn't have the capacity, that he doesn't have the strength, that he doesn't have the means. He's not able to do it. And here's what's interesting. If they would have said he's not willing to do it, they would have been true. But let me ask you, is Jesus able to come off the cross if he wanted to? You bet he is. And at the end, it was just another ploy to hold control. Do what we say, and then we'll believe. And to the very end, Jesus did not give it to them. Because they, they wanted what they wanted, but they wouldn't accept what they needed. Listen to this great truth. He would not save himself if he was going to save us. His obedience and selflessness, not to save himself, saved us. The final paradox or the final exchange that I want to talk about is our application of this. 2 Corinthians, Seth read it earlier, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who is sinless, becomes sin so that we can be declared without sin before God. This is the beauty and wonder of forgiveness and sin that we find at the cross. What does God, what does Jesus want us to learn and embrace and live from, from the cross? From the work and from the lips of Jesus, he left us with what he wants to reverberate all through history and in our lives. And it's these three words, Father, forgive them. To me, these are probably the most powerful three words ever put together in Scripture. Father, forgive them. And think about it. This looks nothing like the Garden of Eden from the beginning. Jesus and God walking around the cool of the day, creating things, having fellowship, Adam and Eve, all of them there. And now we're seeing Jesus on the cross. Who would have thought? And it's not that Jesus dies. He dies on a cross. He, he doesn't die from disease. He doesn't die from an accident. He willingly chooses the cross in obedience to the Father. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. And think about what he's gone through. All those people in the garden that were supposed to be with him, his buddies, people who had walked with him for years, they're gone. He's been brought through a corrupt trial with charges and false witnesses. He's been flogged and beaten and mocked and spit on. He's been insulted. He's been slandered. He's been rejected by his own. And now he's not even the city, in the city where God is to dwell, Jerusalem. They pushed him outside the city, and they're crucifying him. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. Remember, just a few weeks before this, Jesus was preaching a message, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, 
do good and do not do evil. Was that just a message? Was that some kind of good theology? Or was Jesus actually living it out right now? Praying for those who were crucifying him, his enemies. 1 Peter 2.23, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I don't know about you, but one of the things that the cross screams to me is particularly with these three words and what Jesus was going through is this. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that you have ever done or are currently doing or will ever do that can't be forgiven because of the cross. Do you hear that? Do you understand the love the forgiveness that is available for you and I? Jesus on the cross let us know there is nothing that you have ever done that, cannot, that God cannot forgive. And, and here's the interesting thing. What are we called to do with our sin and our shame and our guilt? We're to run to the cross. The sin that, that separates us from God, when we take it to the cross, is the thing that brings us back to God. One author said this, Enemy love and forgiveness was the distinctive feature on the cross, both for the one who forgives and for the one who is forgiven. So rather than us staying in the cycle of bitterness and judgment, forgiveness actually cracks open a door and allows a new possibility to enter in our lives. When we receive the forgiveness of God through Jesus on the cross, old things get passed away, and behold, all things become new. I don't know if you've experienced this, but we live in a culture right now that when we talk about justice or we talk about forgiveness, it actually feels more like retribution, like something's got to be uh, given in order for me to give you forgiveness. Like the thought is this, that, that we'll forgive, but you have to pay me something for it. And so we hold out forgiveness until we figure out how much we want to collect in your retribution for forgiveness. You follow me? It's a subtle way to stay in control. It's a way to, to take a position of punishment rather than restoration. And I'm amazed. I'm amazed at the capacity in which Jesus could freely forgive, especially those who are carrying out his crucifixion. In the painful moment of the cross, there was nothing, absolutely nothing, hindering Christ's forgiveness. There was no bitterness. There was no resentment. There was no, I'm going to get you back for this. There's no, like, this is what you've got to do in order for me to forgive you in it. Simple, powerful, Father, forgive them. From the words, from the cross, we find amazing, unconditional love that grants Jesus freedom to express unconditional forgiveness. One author said this, the church at its best is taking Jesus' spirit and living it out in the world. The church at its best is taking Jesus' spirit and living it out in the world. What spirit? Spirit of forgiveness. So that means when somebody 
offends us or hurts us or responds to us in a hurtful or different insensitive way. We don't hold back forgiveness. And when we do that, we extend to the world around us the same unconditional love and forgiveness that we ourselves have received. The way to break the cycle of bitterness, resentment, and retribution is through costly forgiveness. And if you've been wronged, you know how costly and how hard it can be to extend forgiveness. But a perspective that may help us is from a quote from John Stott who said this, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see the cross as something done by us. That we ourselves have sin to be forgiven of, and Jesus freely forgives us. Scripture reminds us that bitterness grieves the Holy Spirit, grieves the spirit of forgiveness, hinders and halts the spirit and power of reconciliation. And I know, I know that can be scary to extend forgiveness because it feels like in some way we're losing control, maybe even an identity that we've wrapped around the withholding of forgiveness. But Jesus gives us this wonderful reminder from, from the cross. The church at its best is at its best when it lays down the right of repayment and retribution and she responds with mercy. One author commented this way, forgiveness is the hinge on which the door of the kingdom of God opens in a life. This morning, as you can tell, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper and Communion. There's no better time to reflect on communion and the cross of what God has done for us and what he can do through us. And, and let me just say, this morning, if there's never been a time where you've received the forgiveness of God and the work of Christ on the cross, today is the day. This morning is the morning to receive this verdict that's been placed over you by Jesus. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Freely forgiven. All the shame, all the guilt, all the pain forgiven and now you can forgive others and so when we take of communion in a worthy manner we remember the sacrificial willingness to be weak by Jesus on our behalf that we can be made strong Seth and the team is going to come and play and as they play you can come partake of communion take it back to your seat hold on to it and we'll partake together at the very end but as they come let me pray for us God I thank you for this wonderful, mysterious, paradox exchange that happens at the cross. That you became sin, not that you sinned, but you became sin on our behalf that we could become sinless before God. God, I thank you for this paradox, this, this thing that happened at the cross where when you were weak, you made us strong, and, and the, the insults and the shame became our strength. And God, I just pray for any person here who's holding on to resistance, or there's a hesitancy to either embrace your forgiveness through Christ or extend forgiveness to others. I pray this morning that the Spirit would free them to receive and to give 
from the cross. We'll trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please come and partake of communion.